You're listening to the Full Circle Music Show, the why of the music biz. Well, here we are once again at the Full Circle Music Show. I'm Chris Murphy, sitting beside Mr. Seth Mosley. How are you, sir? I am good, and I'm so excited to be here today. Man, I, I'm i impressed every time we do a show because we have such amazing conversations, and not just because they're amazing conversations, because you can have that with just about anybody, but the, uh, the amount of talent, the amount of... Uh, hardware on these people's walls, just giving you proof of their music industry cred. Uh, it's just, it's huge. Today we've got Neil Avron on the show. You'll know Neil from his mixing and producing of everybody from Sarah Borales, Linkin Park, Switchfoot, and then it goes on and on. Wallflowers. I mean, good grief. The guy's done everybody. You've probably heard his, one of his latest works everywhere, which is a song called Shut Up and Dance by a band called Walk the Moon thing has been on movies, TV shows, top tens, top one, you know, number ones, everything. But this guy talks to us today about the craft that goes into our work. And he's really someone that we should all kind of aspire to because he's a perfectionist. He's been at it and is always constantly learning. I think one of the big parts of what we try to talk about on this show is education. And Neil is a big fan. I can tell just by talking to him today that you should never stop learning and never stop improving. It's pretty incredible to think that uh, with the amount of credits that Neil has, he could very easily rest on his laurels, but he hasn't, and he continues to put out hits and put out records that are critically acclaimed as well as loved by the public. And to reinvent himself continually, not be afraid of that. True. You listen to Wallflowers and you listen to Walk the Moon, those are pretty two pretty different things, <laughs> but the, the fact is, is that he's not afraid to keep reinventing himself and keep refining his craft. Let's get right into it. Got special guest Neil Avron with us via Skype all the way from Hollywood, Los Angeles, California. Thanks for joining us. Of course. Neil, I've gotten the chance to work with you a few times, and I know that even in the time since I mean you you've you've done some just incredible work in your career that I've been a big fan of. But even since I've known you, it seems like your work just keeps getting more and more awesome by the second i mean you you had a big hit recently with the band called walk the moon um that literally if you turn on the radio or if you turn on tv you cannot help but hearing that song <laughs> shut shut up and dance is the name of the song right correct and uh can you i mean maybe elaborate uh on i guess that story but even more so just back up with just for the people out there um, how did you get it to, to where you are, and, and, and what's the path that leads up to you mixing a song like that and uh, just taking over the world? Well, this could take the whole hour, but... <laughs> we got time. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, I don't know how most people take their path, but for me, it's just really been the slow, gradual climb. Um, and now, in retrospect seeing other people kind of go into the music business both uh, you know now and people that have been in it for a long time I think I wouldn't have done it any other way and you know for me it started out I started working I went to music school got a music degree I was a trumpet player played some keyboards um, and um, after graduating uh, music school I worked at a uh, couple big recording studios. I started out actually as a tech fixing the gear. And that was kind of more of a means to an end because when I was at school, when I was at University of Miami, uh, a couple people who had graduated before, a couple years before us, would come back and talk to us about what it was like on the real, you know, outside in the real world. 
And I remember, I remember one person in particular who I thought was a really great engineer when we were in school came back and he must have lost 30 pounds. He looked like hell. And um, he was telling us, you know, how hard it was. He was in New York. He was a runner, you know, making no money, sleeping on couches. And I just started going, whoa, I don't know if this is what, <laughs> exactly what I was uh, expecting. <laughs> and um, but but he he said that you know the techs that worked at the studio had more normal hours they made more money and if you could do that that would be a, mu a much better way to get your foot in the door so uh, lucky for me I was also getting a minor in electrical engineering and had a real um, uh, natural ability to kind of fix gear so I decided to apply for jobs at these studios as techs and found that it was pretty easy to get a job that way. And I started at a studio in Miami as a tech, and then I assisted a little bit, and then I found out about a job here in Los Angeles, and I moved here and started again as a tech for about a year. And then one of the, when one of the assistants finally moved on to becoming an independent engineer, I told the studio that I wanted to move into assisting. So I never really had to kind of go through the runner route. I went right from teching into assisting. And then from assisting, uh, I assisted for about three and a half years on amazing sessions. Wow. Uh, um, you know, just got to watch the best of the best engineers and producers and how they worked and really just was a sponge. You know, I was working 100 plus hour weeks and I could just never get enough of it as I find that most of us that work in studios, kind of that's it. Like if you, if you really are truly in love with this thing, you just can't get enough of it. You just love doing it. You know, you were mentioning a, a minute ago that you say that you would spend uh, over 100 hours a week uh, working and it, and it didn't get old for you. Um, that sounds like a lot of time to dedicate to one thing, but I guess if I'm hearing you correctly, if it's your dream that that's, that's what you're pursuing, then there's nothing to get tired of because you're in the thick of what you want to be doing anyway. Is that, am I hearing you correctly? Yeah, I mean, I... I think almost, yes, it is your dream, but I think more so it's just, it almost isn't work. It's, it's just something you enjoy so much that it doesn't feel like work. So when you're there for 12 plus hours a day, uh, you're never thinking about it as, as work. You're thinking about it as music. You're thinking about it as, you know, bonding with these musicians and, and, and getting these performances on tape and, and going from literally back then, a, literally an empty tape reel to the magic of a finished song, um, you know, it's hard, it's hard to uh, come up with something that's, that's, that's that equal. It's like, you know, if you're a painter, when you start with a blank canvas and you finish something, there's just a feeling it's hard to express for somebody who has that in them. And for me, it was just so profound that I loved doing it so much that and you know it's like Vegas. There's no windows in these studios, so you don't know what time it is. <laughs> so when you're there for 16 hours a day, all of a sudden you're exhausted and you fall asleep. Just as you're about to fall asleep, you're like, "Oh, I was just in the studio for 16 hours, and I got to get up in five and do it again." So yeah, I never really thought of it as like a job. I guess it just seemed like a passion, and I loved it. So it didn't matter about the hours. That's incredible. Is that always been the way that you have interacted with music? Has it always been that close to you? I think so. I mean, ever since I was, I can remember in elementary school starting on the recorder and the auto harp and stuff like that, I remember just loving it. 
and taking piano lessons when I was a kid. And uh, although I had a few piano teachers that I didn't love, I remember having these feelings about music and always being drawn to it and having my 45 collection and, and just, just, you know, just always being drawn to music. Yeah. If you were doing anything else, what do you think you'd be doing if you weren't uh, the Neil Laveron that we know today? I've probably had that discussion with myself a million times, and I can't, <laughs> and I can't imagine anything. I mean, I guess, I, you know, I, to be honest with you, I started college as an electrical engineer. I thought I wasn't going to go the music path. And um, after a semester of that, I was getting really great grades and everything, but I just decided I, I couldn't see myself you know, in a suit designing electronic circuits for, you know, some air conditioning company or something and getting my little pay raises and whatever. And I probably would have been happy, but I don't think I would have been deeply satisfied. And I just made that decision that I'd rather earn less money and be happy in my life than do that. And so I just made that conscious decision to be happy in my life and do what my passion was and then let the chips fall where they may. Oh, with you going into engineering, was that something that you did because you thought that's what you needed to do, that that was the appropriate thing to do was to get a kind of a, I don't know, for lack of a better term, safe, secure job um, that this music thing, although uh, a passion of yours wasn't something that could really uh, make a living or uh, be called a career? Absolutely. I mean, uh, I don't think anybody in my family thought the music business was a good business to go in. (laughs) And, and, you know, let's face it, for all of us that have had any success in the music business, uh, there are probably 20, 50 people that haven't. And um, so it's, it's like most businesses, it's, it's very difficult to kind of rise up and, and be, uh, you know, in a, in a situation where you're making a good living and, and working on good projects. Do you think that your your family, your parents would still have that uh, that relation to the music industry now that they've seen your success? Uh, let's put it this way: I think they've, despite my success, if they were having another child today, they would probably probably say, "Oh, don't do that. Be a, <laughs> be a doctor, be a lawyer, be a uh, you know something that they think is stable." But you know, that's also kind of a, a more old fashioned looking way uh, to look at things. Absolutely. I, you know what? I think that there is a, a sense there that, um, you know, maybe for parents, I want my child to have the best chance at success. And, you, you know, the, the streets of Hollywood are littered with all those that have come to try to do it uh, or the music business or, or whatever you're, you're going into. Uh, so I don't take that as bad advice from parents, but when the passion is there and you've got the skill set as well, uh, like you obviously do, um, that that is a different set of circumstances altogether. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think it overrides everything. I tell my kids, um, based on my experience, to do what they're passionate about. Do what they love. Do something that, when you're doing it, it doesn't feel like a job. It feels like something you want to do. Because if you do that, and you're good at it, and you have a passion for it, the money part of it will come eventually. You know what I mean? You will, you'll, you'll find your way. You'll find your niche, and the money. Don't worry about the money. That will come. Um, but if you hate your job, even though you're making decent money, I don't think you're going to necessarily be happy in life. Sure. 
Well, and I think that you kind of spoke on it earlier as well. The fact that you set yourself up for success um, because you definitely did. Um, you put in the time, you put in the hours, you put in the education. Um, and so it wasn't an overnight thing, but it was something that uh, the success is a, a whole lot easier to attain when you're not just walking into it for the first time and expecting to knock it out of the park. A hundred percent agreed. I, I definitely took the um, long range goal approach for myself. And for, for me, it's really worked out. And I, to be honest with you, I still don't feel like I've attained, you know, goal, all the goals that I want. So I feel like I'm still clawing and fighting and learning and, and working towards those goals. What do you think was the, uh, could you pinpoint one specific time or a time in your life where you thought this is it? Like, because I know that it's so much of life and then trying to make it into a career is, you know, you're trudging along, you're putting in those hundred hour a week, uh, those, that time. What was the first thing that you said, okay, th- this is it. I made the right decision. I'm, I'm going down the right path here. I mean, I would say that's probably when I was involved in my first big hit. You know, then I, then I thought, okay, this, yeah, this is, this is, this is the right way. I mean, I guess really uh, even before that, the, the first minute I walk into a studio and I'm working with people that just, you know, three, four years ago, I was looking at the back of records and going, oh my God, these are the best musicians or this is the best studio. I've got to, I would love to work there. And then all of a sudden I'm in the room with them and I'm doing the punch-ins and, it, it, that to me, those were my idols, you know, those, those studio musicians or those studios. So getting a chance to be in there and one of them, that was, that was an amazing experience for me. And was there, was there a song that you felt like, okay, so your first big hit I, is, I, I'm guessing, is that, is that, was that an Everclear song? Or what, what, what would you say was that one song where you felt like, okay, this is it. Like I've, I've not made it, but I'm, I'm doing what I want to do. And I, I feel like I have some degree of expertise and, and, and critical reception. Um, well, the first big hit I was involved with, with, uh, with was the uh, Wallflowers uh, record that had one headlight on it and Six Avenue Heart, Heartache and that record ended up selling 5 million records. Mm. When we were working on that record, I didn't know that it would be that kind of a big record. I liked the songs and I thought Jacob's voice was amazing. And, you know, I learned a lot working with T-Bone who I worked with on several projects. And, uh, when that became big, it kind of became a, for me, it became like a snowball of opportunities uh, and that's actually how I got involved with Everclear is art from Everclear loved that wallflowers record and he found me out. And so I got involved with them and I started as just an engineer for the Everclear record. And he ended up making me co-producer, uh, because he felt like I was adding a lot to the record on a production side. So, and then the Newfound Glory guys really loved the Everclear records. And so you can see it just started to snowball. And the Fallout Boy guys loved the Newfound Glory records. And so, uh, you know, essentially a career was born. Sure. And um, that's, that's pretty amazing. Even to go back to the, the Wallflowers record, I mean, to hear a song like One Headlight 
coming through your speakers as you're tracking it. That's enlightening for me to even hear that, yeah, we didn't know. We didn't really know it was going to be a hit. I mean, isn't that so true that um, whenever you go into work every day, I mean, how many days do you feel like, oh, yeah, this is going to be a hit? Like, most of us are just guessing all the time, I feel like anyways. <laughs> even even experts, and, and for you to say that, like, n- nobody can can really ever know. So doesn't that speak to just the discipline of just showing up every day? A hundred percent. I mean, you, you it's really... It's hard to tell. You go in with the intent. You know, you may feel a song is strong. Um, um, you know, you may feel a sound you've developed is strong. Um, but it's really, at the end of the day, there. I mean, look, there was a, definitely a visceral feeling when you listened to those songs that things felt really good. And at that point, they felt very organic and real. And uh, But no, I mean... Could you imagine it selling five million records? Definitely not. And that was back in the day also when MTV was still quite big and really could help things out. And the one headlight video um, just really, I, I think, echoed the song and, and you know, it just had a great look and feel to it. And so I think the whole thing kind of uh, pushed it into uh, a new strata. Sure. And, um, I mean, to kind of... To kind of piggyback on all that, um, would you say that, I mean, if you, if you had kind of one piece of advice going back to the younger you, knowing what you know now at the, you know, you're, you're obviously pretty established in your career, but if you, were, if you were to look back on yourself on the very front end when you were doing those long hour, late night things in the studio, what would you tell yourself then if you had one piece of advice? Uh, or two or three or four. Yeah, <laughs> you know, there's that book or uh, or saying where you know put in your ten thousand hours. That's what it takes. Sure. And I guess I'd probably you know on those long nights or those nights when or those days when my wife had something with her work and I would miss that because I was working every Sunday or you know I was at the whim of the at that point the producer's schedule so if they wanted to work on a Sunday or if they wanted to work on a holiday or they wanted to work you know if they said hey we're not going to work this upcoming weekend so I would make plans and then they go you know what we decided we are going to work this weekend Hmm. and so now I had to scuttle my plans I would tell myself that you know look it's ultimately going to be worth it it's going to be a lot of sacrifice and we all make sacrifices not just in the music industry but um, that it was all going to pay off things were going to work out and the hard work would pay off i think i would just tell myself to to stay stay the course and be persistent sure i think that's good man yeah i gosh it seems like again one of the things that seth and i talk about uh on this show is it seems like there's a growing trend um when you talk to um consummate professionals that have been in the game and have seen the ups and the downs and regardless of what the industry is doing, it's just about, uh, you know, putting on your pants every morning and going to work and doing it. And that is in and of itself a reward, but that is how, um, the, when something pays off, when the, you know, when you hit that 5 million, um, album mark, those kinds of things, it's like, well, it's because I continued to, to put in the work on the front end. Um, have you ever gotten to a point where you thought, with some of those things, whether it's um, dealing with the producer's schedule or uh, trying to find, um, 
your balance when it comes to uh, family and work to where has it ever become a point to where it didn't seem worth it or if you decided to possibly make a change or is it or is that sacrifice always been part of the gig and totally worth it um look i mean i uh, i've been married for a while so that's that's the toughest part is having kids having a wife and trying to be in a situation where there's so many demands, mm. especially, especially when you're producing and the artists are, are around and you, you're, you're needed for every part of it and they are very anxious and are ready to roll and be in the studio for those 12 hours a day and you know you got your kid's soccer game or you, know, you need to take your wife to an important event or a dinner or just you know, spend any quality time with them. Um, that, that makes juggling the juggling act very difficult uh, at times. And I think that's been the hardest thing. Sure. But no, I don't think I've ever thought, thought this isn't worth it or um, uh, I want to, you know, hang it up and get a nine to five job uh, because this is, this is just too much of a strain. I mean, I often wonder what it would be like, but I don't, <laughs> I, well, I don't even know if there are nine to five jobs anymore, but, I often wonder what it would be like to have that kind of job where you walk in, you do your work, at 5 o'clock you have zero responsibilities until you walk into work the next day. You know, I often wonder what that life would be like. Um, but for me, it probably wouldn't be very satisfying. I need to be stimulated and I need to be challenged and I need to be um, artistically um, you know, engaged. Sure. Well, it's that whole saying of... Uh you know, a a bad day at doing what you love is way better than a good day at doing what you don't love. So that's that's the way I always think of it anyway. And obviously, yeah, you do got to have the whole work-life balance thing dialed as much as you can. But I'm always thankful every day to wake up and get paid anything for doing what I love to do. So sure. it sounds like you would probably, you know, echo that. A hundred percent. I would, uh, th- I mean, that's, Exactly. When I entered the business, I, I knew it. I, you know, there, if I don't make it, uh, uh, you know, in a, in any kind of big way or whatever it would be, you could consider that. As long as I could, you know, make a decent living, uh, I, it, you know, I'd rather be doing this than making a much better living doing something I disliked. Sure, there there are enough stories out there of people that are barely making ends meet and hating what they do. That I, I'm glad that there are the uh, the dreamers out there that are continuing to pursue their passions uh, in a career that they love and they have passion for. And then the like what you were saying earlier, if you continue to do that, the money will follow. I mean, that's the way I think about it. Shifting gears a little bit, have you ever been put in a situation where you're like, "Oh, this is my dream scenario," uh, and then got into it and it wasn't exactly what you thought it was going to be, or you, you took something and you thought, well, this is, this is going to be okay. And it turned out to be a, quite an amazing transformative experience for you. And I, I'm not looking uh, for you to necessarily spill any names. Um, although you can, if you'd like, but just uh, for the experiential part of trying to go into something with expectations of them either not being met or completely blowing you out of the water. Uh, that's a good question. I don't know that I've walked into any project and thought this is not going to go very well and and it's come out well. I mean, I, I, well, I would say this is, to me, this is more of, or I should say it's less of a project 
by project or artist by artist basis, but more of a day by day thing for me. I w- when I walk into working, I always walk in with like the best of, okay, this is going to be a great day. I'm going to really, you know, work hard and make something sound good or produ- you know, have a great production or whatever. But it tends to be a real roller coaster ride for me emotionally every day. You know, it starts out like, wow, this isn't sounding good. I'm not doing a really good job here, or I'm not. And then, oh, wow, this is a thing that triggers it. Now, oh, I kind of like this. Now I think I found my way. And it's kind of every day, it's this kind of mountain climb for me. Um, you know, and I, and I kind of love that. I love walking out of here. Uh, either really satisfied that I did a great job or, you know, some days I walk out of here and go, you know what, I, I just haven't nailed it. I just need to get out of here. I need to come back tomorrow with a fresh perspective. Mm. And and then I usually can climb that mountain again. And and for me, that's that's more of the, the mental game. Uh, I've been really fortunate to work with a lot of great artists. I haven't had a lot of run-ins with, with people. And I think pro- probably part of that is, you know, as I meet artists before we get working together in, in some kind of uh, – where we're kind of deciding if we want to work together, I think I'm adept at, at kind of finding people that I can relate to and I feel are, are going to be a good working partner for me. And, um, and I try to avoid the people that I think are going to be a big issue and I can tell that there's going to be problems ahead. You know what I mean? Totally. Well, that speaks – I mean, we, we talk all the time at – at um on this show and at you know full circle music that the team is really it and that team includes the artists that you're working with it includes the labels that you're working with includes your own got you know staff at the studios and everything but the team really it is it i mean you can be a one-man show but that only has uh so much of a shelf life you know and and i think that's the guys that make it last in music business would you say that they're just experts at surrounding themselves with just incredible teams? I totally agree. I mean, um, two people that I worked with, I worked with um, T-Bone Burnett, as I mentioned before, and I've worked with Rick Rubin as well. And two, I think those guys are very talented on many levels, but I think one of the things I really learned from those two guys is putting the right people together in the studio for that specific project. And, you know, for me that would mean, okay, this is the type of artist they are, so they should really be in this kind of space, whether it be a commercial facility or a home studio, or, you know, these guys really need a really big, bombastic cement large place with glitzy lounge or these guys need a real intimate homey feel that's wood and dim lights or you know what I mean they really understand that and then so the vibe is kind of set up and then if it's if it's a an artist that's not a band uh, uh, then they put the band together and they have the right musicians and they've really worked hard to get the right kind of people involved and they know whether they should be tracking everything live or if it should be, you know what I mean? There's just a real synergy and they get the engineer that can put it together because, um, and again, if it's for a live thing, they've got a guy who's really great with putting the live sound together and getting the drum sound and getting the vibe right for the room. So I think that's one of their specialties is knowing 
you know, when to, when, how to, how to shape the, the, the session, how, when to put the foot on the gas and, 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 and really put the pressure on the artist to come up with something, when to back off and give them some space. Um, you know, and I think that's, that's just a real feel thing. And some people have that naturally. Some people develop it, develop it over time. Um, but I think that's a really important part of, 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 being a producer and just I've learned those kinds of things from people like that. I, you know what? That's an incredible. And I don't think that we've heard that too much uh, talking about environment uh, here on the show uh, from some of the other guests that we've had. Not that they don't think it as well, but I, I really appreciate how you can articulate that. Uh, and for some of those people maybe out there that are listening that uh, the, the synergy uh, and the thinking through of creating an environment and a, and a group of people uh, to kind of go to battle with for this particular point of time. For some of those out there that are listening, that this doesn't come as naturally as maybe it does to you. Or maybe it wasn't as natural for you, but you have kind of honed your process or being empathetic to the moment. Uh, what would you say uh, that someone could do to kind of start to develop that sense that they can continue to let that grow as they, uh, as they develop in their career? That's a really good question. As you were answering, as you were asking it, I started to think already of my answer. And the first thing that came into my mind was me reading the credits on albums when I was a kid hmm. and seeing who the musicians were. You know, knowing that Russ Kunkel was playing drums on Fire and Rain on James Taylor Records, and yeah. you know, and knowing that Danny Korchmar was playing with Don Henley on Boys of Summer, and you know what I mean? And, and so you start to have these names of these people, and you associate them with these projects. And so you start to wonder why those people were chosen to play on those records. Or you see an album where there's, you know, this guy played drums on these three songs, this guy played drums. You know, you think of like Peter Gabriel's So record, and like Stuart Copeland played hi-hat on a song. <laughs> you know what I mean? And you just go, okay, why did he play hi-hat only on Red Rain? And, you know, part of that is that one of the things that makes Stuart Copeland so magical is what he does with his hi-hat. So the producer decided, I'm going to hire the absolute best hi-hat player ever to play hi-hat on this song. You know what I mean? It was, <laughs> that's incredible. So, so to me, that's, I think that's how it formulates in my mind is, you know, who's really going to fit the song for that moment, for that part. I mean, that's a very esoteric kind of one-off little reference sure but you know if you listen uh, you know if you listen to Manu Kashe and playing on a Robbie Robertson record or something like that or even the Peter Gabriel records and you see what he brings to those grooves and you just go wow that is just the best choice you could possibly imagine and to me that's a producer being on his A game you know that it brings me to think of something that uh, and this is in no way a judgment on uh, the current state of how music is distributed and everything but I also remember growing up and I had a really intimate relationship with liner notes. Every time I would get an album, I would just pour through them and memorize the people and memorize what they were doing and why they were there in a similar manner to what you're speaking of. Uh, and I, um, it's sad to me to think that there may be a generation of musicians that are growing up just buying a track off of iTunes and not having a clue who's actually on that, on that tune. Um, because it was such an important part of my musical development. And it sounds like uh, you as well. A hundred percent. It is a real shame 
that there's no good as CDs are kind of going the way of the dodo. There's real, really no way for people to be informed of who produced it, where it was made, uh, maybe what studio it was made in, what musicians were used, um, you know, those kinds of things. And to me, that's inspirational. Mm. It's really important. I mean, if you ever look at credits on my records, I always write things like, you know, mastered at Sterling Sound, New York. I want people to know, you know, where, you know, or, you know, made in this studio in Hollywood, California. I want them to know. So if they ever get a chance to be in that room, in that town, there's a real feeling like, oh, this is, this is the room. This is, I can see why, you know, that song has that sound because, yeah. because the room has that sound. You know what I mean? And, I, and to me, I just, I love that connection. Well, and I mean, along with that, that, that kind of brings me to an interesting question of, you know, with nowadays, you having been in the business since um, Wallflower's One Headlight, I mean, a lot has changed since then with not only um, record budgets, but just the, the fact of how records are even made nowadays. Um, can you speak a little bit to that? I mean, do you feel like that's had a, and is having a negative impact on the record making process or are people just having to be more resourceful? I mean, nowadays I even think, you know, okay, we're most records that we're making are in my studio in Franklin, Tennessee. And so obviously we're not usually getting the choice of, you know, let's go to this room and that room and this room and that room just for kind of convenience sake. But how, have you have you seen that as a negative thing with record budgets kind of decreasing and how how the process is uh is carried out nowadays um i think i think a lot of thoughts with regards to this yes i think mm-hmm. it's negative uh let let's start with the first thing i think the fact that people aren't getting paid for their uh, uh creative Output is a real sh- shame. That's the, that's the first thing, and that's just trickling down to all of us. But without getting on the high horse of that part of it, I think the, that, yes, I think a lot of people in the music industry are missing out on that, that ability to bond together in a space that is unique for that record with a, a unique group of musicians. Um, that's not to say you can't make, you know, a lot of records out of the same room and every time you have to do a different thing. I'm just saying, I think there's, look, there's so many studios that have gone out of business, so many people that have worked, that worked at those studios, so many people that support them, people who rent drums, who rent guitars, who, um, you know, musicians, you know, how many string players have been out of a job because we can all, just synthesize these samples that we buy for a couple hundred dollars. Hmm. Um, I mean, you could go on and on and on. And it's not like, you know, it's not unlike the automotive industry where they have robotic things putting together cars now so people are out of jobs. It's not necessarily super different, but it, it in my mind, as somebody who grew up with all those people and that whole back part of the, uh, of the music industry... And seeing all those jobs go away, it's really, 
it's kind of a sad thing you know, to not go to these commercial facilities um, nearly as much, and a lot of people don't do it at all. Sure. And so, yeah, it, it, I feel that's a shame. Um, and so there's a, there's, a, there's a big trickle down. I mean, we're getting down to only a couple re- real record companies. Yeah, there's a bunch of indies, but you know, there's only really a handful of majors anymore. Uh, and, you know, it seems like eventually we're going to be down to one record company called like Big Brother Records and they just do, <laughs> like, you know what I mean? That, that's where it feels like there's only a handful of A&R people. And, and so, yeah, I think it's, it's really a little bit of a shame. Now, on the other side of the spectrum, I do think that there is a lot of innovative music being made. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with, you know, anytime there's new gear, you know, somebody pushes it to the limit. You know, we got auto-tune. Everybody hated auto-tune. Then Cher did that thing with the crazy auto-tune. It became this thing. Right. So, okay, that became like um, its own instrument in a way. And with all the soft synths, they become their own little thing. Um, but stuff starts to get a little homogenous, and so people have to push the envelope in different ways. So I, I think there are good things that come out of it. I think we have a kind of a wider range of musical styles than we've ever had, uh, which I think is great. I think artists that don't have a chance to be on a major now have a chance to get their music out there, and I think that's great. Um, so I think there's pluses and minuses. Um, but to me, the, the big backstory ultimately is that I'd love to see artists get uh, compensated for their art and I'd like people not to think that 99 cents is, you know, way too much to pay for a song. And, you know, all music should be free. And I just think that's, that's a very slippery slope when you go there. Yeah. yeah I, of course. I, I would uh, echo that as well. Uh, do you have any idea, if you were suddenly put in charge of all music industry protocol, that you uh, there's something you could step in and do immediately or over time that would help to uh, kind of bridge that gap from where we were to where we are now so that it's not so um, commoditized? I think the, the, the biggest thing that I always think of is education. And to me, that starts with, you know, first graders and second graders and third graders who are already on the Internet. Um, teaching them that the internet is not free. Things that, you know, you think are free aren't really free. Somebody make, make the connection in their brains at a very early age that if there is something, some content or some thing on the internet, it's not really free and explain to them how somebody had to create it, that it took them time to make that and that time is worth something and it's valuable and you can equate it to, you know, I always equate it to some guy who pays for a load of lumber, has it delivered to his house so he can build a house or a lot to build a house. And then some people walking by and go, oh, you know what? There's a few two-by-fours. I could use some of those and just grabbing them. Hmm. You know, nobody would really do that. I mean, not somebody of the right mind and a good conscience sure. would do that. And so for, to just go, oh, there's a song. I can see a button that that I can press and I can instantly have it for free. It's, you know, because you're anonymous and you're behind this cloak, you can just go ahead and do that. And I think if you educate people and you spend 10, 12, 14 years teaching them about this thing, then I think in a generation, 
you will have a more educated, you know, teenager who or, or young adult who will go, oh, you know what? I, I have a conscience. I'm not going to download that for free because I know that, you know what I mean? I wouldn't want somebody downloading my work for free or my software that I developed or whatever, my intellectual property. And I think they'd have a, a healthier respect for that. And I think that's really the long-term thing that I would do. Yeah, that's good. Um, well, Neil, as as we're as we're wrapping up today, thank we're we're really thankful for your uh, your time and your generosity for uh, joining us today. Um, if you were to leave our listeners with any thought today, what might that be? No uh, pressure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. You know, if music is the thing that you're passionate about and you love, then, you know, go for it. If it's, if it's not, then it's going to be too hard. You know, it, it requires too much of your life. And if you don't have that drive and that passion, then that's okay. Find that thing that is. But if it is that, dri- if it is that passion that you wake up wanting to do and that you can't get enough of, then, you know, find a way to get your foot in the door, start, you know, learning your craft and, and know that it's okay that it takes time to work up to, you know, whatever level it is that you think you want to attain, but it can be done. If you, if you've got the, you know, if you've got some skills and you've got that passion, um, then go for it. Awesome, man. Uh, that that was well said. I, I wish that I had uh, listened and paid attention to uh, that type of advice uh, years ago. Uh, I I felt like for myself that there was so much uh, in the world that like, oh man, I would love to be doing that, but it seems like it would take so much work. So I'm not going to start that today. And then to continue to have that passion, but to never have started, uh, it, it eventually uh, kind of fades away. And so to hear you say that and to to hear that with all the success that you've had uh, really means a lot because it, it's not an overnight process. But with hard work and something that you love, you can really make a difference and, and live your dream. And uh, you don't have to get that nine to five job that would be uh, something that could kind of that could kill your soul, so to speak. Absolutely. Neil, this has been a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. It was great talking to both of you. Yeah, I mean, have a have a blast, man. I'm sure I'm sure you're going right back to work, so we'll 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 let you get to it and uh, mix the next uh, walk the moon smash. <laughs> <laughs> All right, you guys. Well, hopefully, it's something we work on together. Yeah, hey, I'm, there you go. Looking forward to it. All right, man. Neil, Great I'll be in touch, man. I sure do appreciate it. Of course, and Seth, congrats on on all your success too, dude. You're killing it, man. Well, right back at you. Thank you. All right, man. Bye bye. Talk to you soon. Bye bye. Hey, we hope you've enjoyed this episode and will join us again soon on the Full Circle Music Show, the why of the music biz. Check us out at fullcirclemusic.org slash podcasts.